Welcome to Evolutions of Astrology. This is Dina DiCastro, and on this podcast, I'll be interviewing astrologer Jody Forrest. Jody's previous works include Skymates, Love, Sex, and Evolutionary Astrology, and Skymates 2, The Composite Chart, written with her husband Stephen Forrest. She's also a fiction author and has written the Rhymer Trilogy, a Nordic-Celtic historical fantasy beginning with the Rhymer and the Ravens. The focus of this podcast will be Jody's recent book, The Ascendant, in which she discusses the Ascendant through the lenses of the arts, psychology, relationships, evolutionary astrology, and metaphysics. So I'm here with Jody Forrest, and we're going to be talking today about the Ascendant, but I'd like to also um, have you, Jody, give some background as to how you got into the field of astrology. What drew you as, uh, as to astrology as an interest? That's a really good question. Um, the short answer is I don't know. The long answer is begins with I started reading astrology books when I was eight years old, and I just never stopped. Mm-hmm. That seems to be a common story with a lot of astrologers that uh, a lot of people came to it in childhood or mm-hmm. at least teenage years in some way and, and just always had this compelling interest and drive to keep reading. Um, so it was something you were always just fascinated by then. It's always been there. And friends tell me I was doing informal readings for them when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how I would relax from studying when I was in college and graduate school, be to haul out the astrology books. Mm-hmm. So it's it's very familiar territory to you and something that just kind of was always uh, in your background and there in your mind. Um, mm-hmm. And you felt you had some maybe intuitive awareness of what uh, the symbols and the signs meant. Um, that's another good question. Um, when you've been reading about it since you were eight years old, I, I really don't know how much is intuition and how much is just kind of, you know, settled down into deep processing parts of your brain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Intuition be... is part of, of doing a reading, um, of course, but you, you also have to memorize, um, you have to do the left brain work of really understanding the definitions of about 41 bits of information, mm-hmm. and right. then you can start improvising with them. That's what lets your intuition flow, is, is you don't have to go into your left brain because your left brain has already learned these things. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's it's a combination of left brain, right brain stuff, mm-hmm. but in the end, it's it's uh, synthesizing that and um, all the information that you've read, plus your own intuition as you're mm-hmm. developing it over time, too. Uh, you mentioned in the book and in the introduction that you had almost started this book on The Ascendant, which is your most recent book, uh, almost 20 years ago. And, and so you got kind of pulled into other projects. And of course, you started uh, your own publishing uh, label, which is Seven Paws Press. Mm-hmm. And that obviously has kept you very busy for the past 20 years. Uh, oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> doing the projects, um, not only for yourself, but for your husband, Stephen, um, publishing your work, his work, and uh, your own fiction writing. Mm-hmm. So I'd actually like you to talk a little bit about that and your fiction. Do you use your astrological background at all in your fiction writing or your interests there? Do they do they overlap in any way? Um, yes, they do. Um, the second novel of the trilogy, um, the trilogy starts with the Rhymer and the Ravens, but the second novel, The Elf's Prophecy, introduces a character who's what I imagined a ninth century Scandinavian astrologer who had traveled to the Fertile Crescent to mm-hmm. be. Mm-hmm. And it's not preposterous. Um, Scandinavians were getting down into the Fertile Crescent. They were um, the emperor's guard in Constantinople. 
at one point during the Viking Age. So they definitely got down there, and I'm sure picked up some astrological lore. Were they at all curious? It was available. As for astrology native to Scandinavia, nobody really knows mm-hmm. um, what was up there and, and when, when or if. Um, but I wanted an astrology character, so the way I could work him into what was a historical fantasy was to have sent him to a part of the world where I knew astrology was happening. As for, so he's an astrological character. There's another character who's interested in astrology, too, who has access to some of the material that had sort of drifted into um, what might have been available in Britain at the time. Mm-hmm. As for using it as an author and instead of use instead of how my characters use it, um, it really helps me think through a character to set up a chart for the character. Mm-hmm. I, that's exactly what I was wondering and, and thinking about was uh, when you are coming up with characters, are you kind of thinking their astrology through in your head? Absolutely. I've got, you know, charts on all the major characters, but the, the strangest event with that was I went ahead and cast an actual chart for my main character, Thomas, mm-hmm. who I knew was a double Pisces, new moon Pisces, and I knew he was born in um, 851 A.D., and I knew he was born in Birka, which is an island near uh, Stockholm, what's now Stockholm, Sweden. And after some, you know, tinkering about with an astrology program and coming up with the chart I wanted, it it profoundly fit this character that I'd already deeply imagined. I didn't need to imagine the chart. Mm-hmm. But once I did cast an actual chart for someone who might have been born in that place and time, it's, it fit him. That's, that's a whole other uh, use of astrology that has, had popped into my mind before because I've written, um, just kind of played around with fiction writing and haven't actually produced a complete work, but I've wondered about you know, well, if I take a chart and apply it to a character, how would that help me in the character development process? Because if you have astrology as a language for yourself, it's almost like a shorthand that can work for you in developing a character, I think. Oh, yes, it's very useful. mm -hmm. The fiction writing for you took up, you know, several years and a lot of time. And so what eventually led you back to this idea of the ascendant now? Uh, What was kind of the, the sequence of events that took you back to it? Well, the, the short answer there is I, I finally had time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I cleared the deck of a lot of other projects. Yeah. Steve was between books. I was between books. Um, and I realized that if I was going to make the time to write this book, now was the time before something else got onto the slate ahead of it. Mm-hmm. So it was just a clear slate and, a, and an opening in the gap in the schedule there. And, um, but an idea that had been persistent for a while. It had been persistent for quite some time, and when I was finally able to come up for air um, from under under other projects and realize there was nothing else immediately on the docket, mm-hmm. I decided it was high time to write this book. Yeah. In retrospect, the delay was probably good for me and good for it because it's allowed me to bring a considerably more experience into the um, into the writing. Right, and I, I definitely get that um, from the book. And um, having read it, you know, one of the the things that you mentioned that I I found very interesting and and also a commonality with is that you say that initially when you were learning astrology that the ascendant was the thing that was kind of the hardest to grok almost Uh, of all the the basic pieces that was the one that seemed a little elusive at first yes it was and i also had that experience it it seems that the ascendant can be hard to differentiate from the sun and the moon when you're trying to explain it either to a client or to your students. Tell me a little bit about why you found that to be the case for yourself and uh, what, what kind of encouraged you to, to move through that and really get an understanding of the Ascendant. 
Well, there's a specific answer and there's a more general answer. Um, the specific answer is that out of my sun, moon, and ascendant primal triad, the ascendant is the one that's not comfy with the other two. Mm-hmm. So just because of my, I had not fully integrated my own ascendant. Would you be I'm willing sure. to share your, your primal triad for us? Oh, sure. Uh-huh. Um, Aquarian sun in the ninth house, Capricorn moon in the seventh, Cancer rising. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> Being a Cancer sun myself, uh-huh. yeah, I, I can see that. Um, so just coming to terms with my cancer ascendant and, you know, what I was supposed to do with it. And, you know, as, as David Byrne of the Talking Heads would say, how do I work this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it took me a long time to just get it working in sync with the rest of my chart. That's the specific answer because of the peculiarities and, you know, the structure of my own chart. The more general answer is I think we all have some trouble with the ascendant right. to lesser degree, certainly, than I did. But because the ascendant is among other things, the the vehicle through which we travel in this incarnation. Yes. And it has a lot of correspondence to the physical body, which is also the vehicle that we travel through in this incarnation. Right. Um, Issues around comfort in the body, comfort in the physical world, comfort with your kinesthetic self seem to not cause issues with the ascendant, but to have some rather eerie parallels sometimes. And and you bring in the notion of the ascendant as the persona, um, mm-hmm. using Jung's notion of the persona, and you bring in a little background information from Jung in your introductory chapters. And so uh, he talks about the persona as something that we create or construct in order to interface with society, as, as I understood it from mm-hmm. what you were saying. And then he goes on to talk about the idea of over-identification with that persona and the potential dangers of of balancing our relationship to the persona. I so appreciate what you did there and making that link to how we relate to our ascendants in very much the same way. Because that a light bulb went on for me as I was reading it as an astrologer. Um, oh, I see now why there's these difficulties around it. That mm-hmm. uh, it's like our skin, you know, another metaphor you, you bring up and use. It's the thing that we interface with others uh, first in the, in the natal chart. The persona, um, how did, did you, you know, know of Young's work before and just kind of developed over time this sense that it was linked to the ascendant? Or what, what kind of made the light bulb come on for you in terms of linking those two things, the ascendant and the persona? Well, I first discovered Jung's work um, in the early 80s. I'm not sure where the idea first came came into my brain that the ascendant of the persona are linked. I have heard other astrologers discuss it, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, Richard Eidemann and Liz Green spent some time discussing it at a, a couple of seminars I did with them in 1985 and 1986. Right. Um, I'd had the idea, heard the idea, made the connection before them, but I couldn't exactly tell you from where or from whom. And so, but it really developed into a, a great way of looking at the ascendant in this book, especially in that concept of over-identification. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, what is over-identification and how does it apply to the ascendant in your, in your frame? Well, over-identification is sort of like thinking you are your clothing, mm-hmm. it would be the shorthand metaphor <laughs> I would use there. Someone who over-identifies with the ascendant has kind of gotten stuck in their surface self. Say they work in a bank. They come home from the bank. They are just as polite and formal and appropriate and arm's length and careful and, you know, non-invasive with everybody they live with. Mm -hmm. 
you know, spouse, kids, as they are with everybody that they work with in the bank. Right. No one gets closer or farther the way, or way than arm's length is one example of someone who's over-identified with the persona. Over-identification, when you do that, you really lose track of the rest of your chart. Mm-hmm. You get very focused on style. So it's... it's um kind of like like you said thinking you are your clothes you are your externals mm-hmm. and that almost seems like a societal or cultural problem that we <laughs> that we have in this yes, indeed. country yeah uh it's it's style over substance absolutely and um, i mean and that's totally generalizing but um it, that actually leads me to uh, a really uh, a wonderful part of the book for me which was looking at countries and their ascendants uh, and how you talked about America, in particular, as having the the Sagittarius ascendant, which really fit for me. I had gone back and forth, you know, and looking at the different charts that are out there for the United States, and I think you sold me on the Sagittarian one because, oh, good. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that makes sense to me when you brought in the idea of Sagittarius as being bold, you know, trailblazing, adventurous. But also the the more undesirable, you know, Jupiterian or Sagittarian traits of kind of loudness and bigness and uh, the overindulgence piece of it. And that really fit for me in looking at, you know, the general cultural persona for the United States. And some of that can be really surfacey as well, too. It's that aspect of the Sagittarian Jupiter piece, which can be more about the surface stuff and less going deeper. What would trigger uh, someone to over-identify with their ascendant? Well, that lots of different um, causes can produce that effect. Mm-hmm. One is if their ascendant is um, fairly comfortable right. with their sun or moon. Right. It's not the odd one out. And instead, it, um, it initially, quote-unquote, works better. Mm-hmm. Than the sun or the moon, it's easier to do. Right. They get um, another thing is if they get a lot of outside reinforcement from the people around them for doing that ascendant. Another possibility is that uh, there are people for whom self scrutiny is very scary, very painful. If you stay in your surface self, you don't have to look at your deeper self. An example uh, leaps to mind would be someone who has a lot of Scorpio in their. You know, their sun or moon in Scorpio, but maybe a Sagittarian ascendant. Kind of that sunny Sagittarian energy might be more welcome than some of those uh, Scorpionic traits, at least in this culture. And so, could mm-hmm. they then tend to overdo that a little bit or to shield the, the Scorpionic pieces? Absolutely. I yeah. think Libra tends to be the most culturally supported ascendant. Really? Okay. Followed possibly by Sagittarius. Mm hmm. Um, mm-hmm or to some extent Leo, right? air and fire ascendants tend to get a lot more support. Probably air, fire, earth, water is the order of um, outside support. So, yeah, so the, the kind of pleasing aspects of a Libra ascendant, mm-hmm. the, the, the desire to please the other and to uh, kind of assuage and to not go into conflict, those would be maybe things about Libra then that would support it as an acceptable or more accepted ascendant than some others? Um, a classic Libra ascendant, and um, I'm sort of breaking one of the cardinal rules about of evolutionary astrology and mm-hmm. talking about something isolated from the rest of the chart, but someone who overdoes a Libra ascendant is very focused on pleasing others. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you please others, they like that. Right. 
uh, they tend to reinforce the pleasing behavior. They approve of the pleasing behavior. They encourage the pleasing behavior. What we ideally want then is balance, correct, between the sun, moon, and rising sign and how they're working together, or at uh, least balance integration. Balance and flexibility. Mm-hmm. There are times when we need to be in our ascendant and stay there. If we're protecting ourselves, mm, we're right. expressing ourselves. There are times when you really don't want to be any closer than arm's length to anyone else in your environment. You, your ascendant had better be doing its protective function at that point. Right. So I would say, you know, balance among all three, have some moon and ascendant all communicating well with each other so you're comfy with all of your primal triad. Number one, and flexibility. You get to choose when your ascendant is doing its expressive or protective or mediating function. Mm-hmm. You're not stuck in just one of those. Right. And, you know, I had always um, learned of the ascendant as being kind of the mask or the protector. I think that's a, a pretty traditional idea of it. But if you stay kind of too stuck in that idea, then it's not flexible that, oh, this is what I use when I want a mask. You know, it's mm-hmm. and I like um, how you also said, no, it's not just protection, it's expression. Absolutely. And also draw you outward instead of being the thing that shields you. Um, well, it's in charge of foreign relations. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, relations with the outside world. Right. So it's not just one thing. It's It serves other purposes than mm-hmm. we may have traditionally been taught. You know, and in, in researching this, I found that there's seems to be kind of a lack of material out there on the Ascendant, um, just in going back over the at least the last 20 to 30 years in astrology. There have been books written about it. But as far as topics, um, it's not the biggest one. Did you feel like you were in kind of new territory or dealing with some new things? I know you you drew on other people, which you talked about in your book. But Mm -hmm. did you feel like this was something that um, there is relatively little compared to some other things or... Yes, I felt it was an under-discussed area of astrology, very definitely. Mm -hmm. There are a few books that are out there about it, but very few compared to um, the oceans of ink that have been spilled about the rest of the chart. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great quote right there. Oceans of angst. Uh, Yeah, because, I mean, there's probably, you know, so many books about each planet and then each sign and then all, you know, the nodes or other topics. But uh, this is one you just don't see as many out there about. And I just wonder if it's, you know, kind of this nebulousness about it. Just thinking it's maybe not as important as it is. And so, you know, you bring up a good point in the book. You say, well, we don't want to discount its importance, but we also don't want to make it overly important. And so it's, it's a balancing act with it. It's always a balancing act with the Ascendant. That extreme lack of um, material about it, I think, is partly because um, we, at least in the West, have got some, um, some charge around the Ascendant. You know, what is it, what is it not? The same way that we have some charge about the relative importance of externals in our lives. Right. The relative importance of the body, the relative importance of um, how we present ourselves, how we interact with the world. So how does the, the ascendant relate to the body for you? Understanding what um, characteristics classically go along with what ascendants can be very useful for the astrologer if you're doing a rectification and you're trying to determine which one of two ascendants someone has rising. Right. Um, as for physical health, I've, if I'm doing a transit progressions reading and find that a planet is approaching the ascendant, since the ascendant has a lot to do, um, as Alfie Lavoy says, with health, yeah. the six has more to do with disease. Okay. If I see um, a planet approaching the ascendant, I might... Um, 
say that this is an excellent time to make sure that you are taking good enough care of your physical self. Mm-hmm. Saturn coming across the ascendant, for example, will um, test your limits. That includes your physical limits. If you have been unrealistic about how you take care of your body, your chickens tend to come home to roost with Saturn in the first house. And that's certainly something I'll mention in a reading that involves transiting Saturn moving through the first. It is literally a representation of the vehicle or the physical body then as one layer of what it means. Um, mm-hmm. It can represent That's just that. one layer among yeah. many. Right. So you also bring in the, uh, the principles of evolutionary astrology as they relate to the Ascendant. I'd really like to discuss how that is different than some other ways of looking at the Ascendant. Um, you know, as you said in the book, not to, uh, not to say one way of looking at astrology is superior or better than another by any means, but just how is the evolutionary perspective on the Ascendant unique in comparison to others? I think that goes to the idea that a premise in evolutionary astrology is that we incarnate in a succession of lifetimes mm-hmm. um, in order to grow spiritually, in order to grow in consciousness, right. or temporarily in these physical incarnations. Right. And it's the physical body that lets us move around through the world and experience things. Yeah. And, um, gather the experiences that we need in order to grow. Um, to gather the experiences to which we can respond by growing or by um, stagnating. Mm-hmm. You know, if we don't have an, if we don't have a body, we're not here. Right. We, could, we would be a thought form somewhere. Right. And the ascendant has a great deal to do with the physical birth. And at that point, it came to me that um, the ascendant is the vehicle of the incarnation. It's the container of the incarnation. The sun is the ego, the moon is the heart, or the emotional needs, the feelings, and the ascendant is um, what the whole chart is walking around in and what is allow- allowing you to explore reality and giving you a chance to grow. It's the vehicle that moves you through reality, and it's, also, and it's designed for the territory that you need to cover in order to grow. Mm-hmm. Your vehicle is designed for the terrain that you most need. So put it this way, if you um, have an airy sun, um, you're learning courage. Right. But the territory that you need to explore, if you have cancer rising in an airy sun, it's as if the, the whole country in which you need to wander around and learn courage is the cancer country. Which would be potentially um, family, emotions. Exploring your heart, yeah. exploring your feelings. Courageously. <laughs> yes, yeah. courageously. Yeah. Exploring your entire feeling function. Right. Learning to trust your heart, learning to follow paths with heart. So it's a warrior wandering around in a matriarchal culture, for example. <laughs> Which would be a very interesting in a combination. a vehicle that you would use to move around in a matriarchal culture. And those might be two of the uh, primal triad that would be working a little bit um, more difficultly together, Aries and Cancer, perhaps because they're a square, but, um, you know, you've got fire and water. And so the terrain is quite different for those two signs. So it would be an interesting work of a lifetime to be bringing those two together in some way, I would think. When um, one or more, when a couple of points in your primal triad aren't automatically in, in you know, harmony with each other, it is the work of a lifetime to try to get these things together. Yeah. Suppose, say, you have um, a son in Libra. You're working on calming down. You're working on forming relationships. But if you've arrived here with Aries rising, you are doing that while you're driving around through a war zone in a Humvee. <laughs> so it's about maintaining peace within the war zone. Precisely. Yeah, exactly. 
So, and of course, there are these kinds of paradoxes in almost every chart that we look at. You could probably zone in on something, but uh, as a as a paradox or something that is in attention to each other as far as planets go. But when you have the ascendant, um, you're saying it's it's more about you know the ascendant is the terrain or the description of the field that you're going into to learn about or to be your sun sign, your moon sign, etc. Mm-hmm. That's the territory you need to explore. That's where your sun sign and moon sign need to do their work. Yeah. It's it's the locale. It's the location. Right. If you want the $50 word, it's 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 the place. It's the dwelling. This is the, the tenemos. It's, it's the physical site. The ascendant is like the whole alchemical alembic in which the cauldron of the rest of your chart cooks. Hmm. I love that image. And, you know, I think this is very um, practical for astrologers uh, as far as imagery to, to think of the ascendant that way as, as a clue almost to, okay, where does this person, this client in front of me need to focus their energy or what's the terrain that they need to, to work in in order to realize these other pieces in their chart. Mm-hmm. And so I found that to be uh, really useful. You also bring in planets uh, on the Ascendant or in the first house as being part of the Ascendant, the mask or the way of expressing. Mm-hmm. So could you maybe use an example or talk a little bit about that in terms of uh, a specific chart configuration and how that might work? Sure. You can, among many other things, you can think of the Ascendant as astrological clothing, astrological costumes that you need to put on. Mm-hmm. That's the gear that you need to wear to walk around and the territory that you need to explore. Right. And a planet in the first house functions like a second set of clothing. Yeah. It functions like a secondary costume. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if someone has Taurus rising but Mercury and Gemini in the first house... The classic Taurus ascendant is this person is learning about peace and kinesthetic equilibrium and calm and groundedness and exploring their animal side, their instinctual side, right? their instinctive side, um, and exploring all the ways that body, mind, and spirit link up. Right. Their pathway is really through the flesh. It isn't to transform it or deny it or negate it. One of the classic images for Taurus is the strong, silent type. Yeah but not with Mercury and Gemini in the first house. <laughs> right. So sometimes they need to be the strong, silent type, but other t- but they really must also learn to communicate when and as necessary. Yes. They need to be able to put on their communication suit. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like a multi-layered mask. It's, it's, Some uh, people have very complex personas. Yeah. The, the more planets you have in the first house, the more complex the persona becomes. Well, you do a fascinating... Um, a chapter in there where you interviewed actors. And I remember the story of the woman who had Neptune on her ascendant. Mm-hmm. That one st- stood out for me. Um, she had a different ascendant. It wasn't Piscean, but she had this Neptune sitting on her ascendant, which caused her to not only be a very good actress, but so good that her husband didn't even recognize her when she walked onto the set or when he walked onto the set and saw her uh, because she had so much melded into her character, which Mm -hmm. is a kind of Piscean, Neptunian kind of disappearing or dissolving into something else, is how I thought of it. Absolutely. I heard that story from Richard Eidemann, actually. Mm -hmm. I really, I think it's important for astrologers to, if they remember, to credit where they first heard something. Right. Absolutely. Um, And that was, it was just fascinating to hear about that. 
you, you will see it if you take a look at the charts of people you know and you sort of pool all the charts of Neptune in the first house together. Right. And you just observe them, and you'll notice a certain fluidity mm-hmm. in their presentation and an adaptability. It's it's a weird synchronicity, but over the weekend, after reading your book and, and just having read that chapter, I met an actress who actually had Neptune on her ascendant. Okay. <laughs> it was very, she came to stay at my house, and I had never met her You got her a living before. example. I did. It was so funny, um, but she had a Libra ascendant, but then this Neptune on the ascendant, and um, she had been an actress uh, for many, many years. And so I could very much see, you know, having read that in your book and then knowing her, how that helped her to blend into the character so easily. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it's just a, a speaking of Jung's, you know, synchronicity <laughs> notion. It's it's just funny that that happened in that way. I suspect that good actors, um, when they're not acting, may over-identify with their ascendants, mm-hmm. but they're capable of turning that off mm-hmm. when they act. Right, because you, I guess you would have to. Um, you can't really act if you're always permanently stuck in your ascendant. You, right. you can't lose it enough to take on the semblance of somebody else. And perhaps, and this is just a supposition, but they might over-identify with their ascendant while offstage as a form of protection. Because, Entirely so, yeah. yeah. Because there's so much attention and focus on them that they would need uh, an even thicker mask or... Uh, protective barrier between them and others, mm-hmm. uh, which is totally understandable when you're the focus of, of that much um, attention. The whole question of identity in acting, it's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I was taking an acting class. I was actually um, using it as, for something I was writing. I figured that working on developing a character in an acting class would teach me something about developing it on paper. Yeah. And the teacher was nattering away and said, "You know, if it can be very, you know, it can be, and sometimes very helpful to lose yourself in your role and forget about your personal problems for a while." Right. He said, "Some people have um, given their best performances when they were going through personal hell because it was such a relief to be somebody else for a while." Mm-hmm. And then once it's done, it can almost there can almost be a sadness. I've heard actors talking about that too, where when the play ends or the character ends, there's a kind of a feeling of a death or. Uh, and uh, mourning over the loss of this character. One woman I interviewed expressed that to me. She has Neptune opposing her Venus and her Neptune conjuncts her ascendant. Mm-hmm. So that was that was interesting to me. Yeah. So and she missed stepping into that other person. Right. It, it, it's like she needed maybe another skin to step into. That really um, elucidates for me the the function of the ascendant as you know. It's partly how actors look at their skin. And um, we're all acting, in a sense, in public um, or in public relations. Um, We're putting on a suit. We're putting on a style or or the clothes that we wear for any particular situation. So I think acting is a great metaphor. So you talk also about the relationship between the ascendant and the descendant. Mm -hmm. And the descendant, to me, is also one of those kind of under-considered things in astrology. But you really bring it out a lot in your book and talking about its relationship to the the ascendant and how those two function with each other like a seesaw. Could you talk a little bit about that and how you got to that uh, recognition of the descendant and its importance? Well, one of the many roles that the ascendant plays is the persona. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, if you look at the ascendant, it's the first house. But it's also the cusp of the first house, mm-hmm. and it 
it's not a point. Well, it is a point, but it's there's that point turns into a line. Right. There is an opposing line at the other end of the axis. It's always useful to think of houses, to think about the opposing house, to think about the other end of the axis. Right. And the ascendant-descendant axis is um, phenomenally important in astrology because it's how you present yourself to others, the house of the self, how you express yourself. Um, one of the ways of thinking about the ascendant, it's you know the house of you know how your persona moves around in the world. Therefore, the seventh house is the house of how you relate to the other. Mm-hmm. In the most global sense, it's how you relate to and experience everything which is not the self. Right. And signs that are in opposition um, always have some complementarity. They always have something in common. Yeah. But like any tense aspect, the, an opposition is there partly to correct for the opposing signs excesses. Oppositions can be confusing because you, you feel a commonality with the opposing sign, and then the differences in the opposing sign can be all the more frustrating. Right. Because if you're thinking we're alike, but wait a minute, we're not alike there. Why aren't we alike everywhere? The more you over-identify with your ascendant, um, the psyche moves toward towards wholeness, and these archetypal energies move toward wholeness. Mm-hmm. The more you overdo whatever your ascendant sign is, it's almost as if something about your overdoing it constellates the opposite reaction from people around you. So that can actually come to you in the form of a person showing up in your life? Representing that energy, perhaps? Yes, who is attempting to play a corrective function, (laughs) (laughs) which is why the seventh house is also called the house of open enemies. Mm -hmm. You know, I always wondered about that. And the house of worthy opponents. Right. It seems counterintuitive because it's known more widely as the house of marriage and partnership. And so a lot of people start to free associate to romance and um, everything's rosy. And of course, Libra is the natural ruler of that house. But uh, the open enemies part, I never quite understood that, but you, you made it so much more clear in your book and, and discussing that piece of it. It's like, oh, these pieces of ourselves that come back to in the form of somebody else to kind of show us something or confront something. If we overdo our ascendant, um, someone we're in a seventh house relationship with who attempts to correct us and tell us to tone down and quit overdoing it, then feels to us like our open enemy. Mm-hmm. Often feels to, to us like our open enemy. Right. Actually, they're our worthy opponent, but they feel like our open enemy. Right. They're helping us to grow, as yeah. most partners do in some way. Um, you know, in growing through partnership, and that's. Often the only way that we can truly grow is in how we relate, I think, to the other in some way. It's how we find out about ourselves. So that enemy uh, really is not, as you say, an enemy, but it's the thing that's prodding us into growth and and moving on from um, a way that we're doing things that is not so functional, perhaps. Well, the seventh house, I always imagine the seventh house is this great big mirror. Mm -hmm. And what it's reflecting is the ascendant through the the medium of other people that we start to grasp ourselves and see ourselves. So, for example, if you had, um, just to take a uh, a, a chart example, if you had someone with a uh, Pisces rising and a Virgo uh, descendant, how would you see that as, what are some of the qualities that might come forward for that person as their other or as the thing that, that keeps coming up for them to look at? Well, if someone is over-identifying with Pisces rising, mm-hmm. um, and if we over-identify, we don't necessarily do that all the time. Occasionally, we have um, 
bouts of over-identifying with our ascendants. Mm-hmm. But someone who is, you know, either temporarily or in a stuck kind of way, right. um, over-identifying with a Pisces ascendant, tends to come across as feeling spacey mm-hmm. and ungrounded. Right. Because the Pisces ascendant needs to present a gentle, mystical, contemplative face to the world. And the territory that they need to cover is territory where they realize they're looking at people as spirits walking around among other spirits. Someone who's overdone that Piscean ascendant can come across as being too heavenly to be of any earthly good (laughs) or too spacey to be of any earthly good. They can come across as extremely ungrounded. So one of the tasks of uh, our Virgo significant other, if, if we have been ungrounded with a Pisces ascendant, is just sort of grab our ankles and yank us back down to earth. And uh, what is Virgo famous for? Organization, detail, mm-hmm. uh, responsibilities. It's an earth sign. It's grounded. It's practical. If you have Virgo rising and you've overdone it, your significant other may respond to you um, with some Virgo messages, even though your significant other may not be a Virgo. Remember, we're talking about archetypes. Right, right. So your the mate may say to you, um, you know, you don't know how to, enough to come in out of the rain. What planet are you from? <laughs> you know, I can't handle this. I want to relate to a human being, not an, you know, not an empty-headed person, and I don't want to have to take care of you. Get back to Earth, yeah. Yeah, come down to Earth or I'm out of here. Or the Virgo ascendant may start to criticize. You spaced out again and again and again and again, and you left this here and you left that there, and you forgot this and you forgot that. Another sort of Virgo response might be to temporarily sort of run interference with reality for the Pisces rising person. That we come into the famous uh, psychological phenomenon of overfunctioning versus underfunctioning. Right, right. And if the Pisces ascendant is underfunctioning and coping with reality, temporarily the person who's playing the seventh house role may overfunction. Right. Until this person gets tired about you know, telling them to brush their teeth mm-hmm. and wash behind their ears and put gasoline in the car. <laughs> right. So it's it's a process of um, refining how you're doing your ascendant, often coming through the avenue of someone else um, telling you, you know, giving you the, the descendant medicine, I guess, is, is mm-hmm. one And way the to descendant it. messages often start gently from your partner. Mm-hmm. If your partner's saying something like, you know, I think this might be a little unrealistic, or this doesn't seem very grounded, or um, you're letting your responsibility slide and I need you to carry your weight. Mm-hmm. That's generally how it starts. Yeah. And if the Pisces Ascendant just doesn't pay attention, it can escalate into a considerably harsher language. Right. <laughs> Get turned up a little louder. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, so this is really um, helpful for me, and also in understanding even um, planets on the Descendant. I mean, we can take, I think what we talked about with planets on the Ascendant and say some of the same things about a planet on the Descendant, if, if I'm tracking with what you're saying as if someone has a planet there on the seventh house cusp or even in the seventh house, it also might be talking about what they're projecting outward or drawing and attracting to them in order to show them some things about themselves. Yeah, the seventh house is, well, it's possible to project any part of the chart, mm-hmm. but our favorite thing to project, <laughs> the, the most likely candidate tends to be what's in the seventh house because at first we least experience that as belonging to us. Right. So if it's not ours, it must belong to somebody out there. Mm-hmm. 
So that can be true with the energy of the sign that's on the seventh house cusp, and it also can be true with any planet that's in the seventh house. So this is really also helpful for astrologers in practice to pay attention to what's on the cusp there um, in terms of those projection patterns and what what themes that might bring up for the person in their life. And of mm-hmm. course, we can't, you know, if we're evolutionary astrologers, we can't say what is happening or at what point of evolution that they are in the process of working with that configuration. But we could say, well, these are potentials and here's what could happen. And it's likely that, you know, the person, if they're coming to you at, at an adult stage, that they've experienced some of that um, and they'll recognize it when you start talking about it. So I found that also really useful for chart interpretation. Yeah, part of doing a reading involves um, presenting lower level, possible lower level responses to a chart configuration as a kind of gentle cautionary tale. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So you might say, um, until you fully claim the seventh house planet, um, you might experience your partners as exaggerated versions of it. And if that happens, this is what they'll look like. Right. So you're saying ifs, you're saying mights, you're using the conditional tense, mm-hmm. you're saying it gently. Yeah, as gently and as palatably as possible. You're not proclaiming that this is a truth. You're saying, you know, well, it could go this direction. It might look like this um, as as a way of gently showing them. And usually they're they're nodding their heads pretty strongly, I find. Yeah, or cracking up. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, one or the other or both. Uh Um, Yeah, absolutely. So, but this is really powerful, I think, in terms of especially tapping into partnership issues, because that is such an important um, issue that people do come uh, for readings on um, or perspective on in their own life, uh, partnership relationship patterns. Uh, And I really found that very valuable in looking at how the ascendant does tie into partnership issues. Very much so. Yeah. Yeah. And the more you over-identify with it, the more partnership issues connected to your seventh house cusp show up. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And looking at the book as a whole, I really um, appreciated the exercises you provided uh, for astrologers. And uh, you came up with some interesting things like um, going to a, uh, a party and trying to guess people's ascendance or mm-hmm. you, you had some really good essay questions as well and things just to ponder. It's like, why do I have the ascendant that I have? Why do I need this particular terrain uh, in order to help me to manifest my chart? And so I, I found those things that were interactive in the book really helpful. And I just wanted to, to let you know that, that this is feedback from an astrologer who's using this and saying, oh, this, this works not only as something I can use with chart interpretation, but also something I'm using to look more deeply into my own chart and the charts of others um, that, I, that are in my circle. Thank you. I really appreciate hearing that. That makes me feel great. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. I guess in closing, I'd just like to have you talk a little bit about your mentorship program. Uh, you do mentoring. Not only uh, do you do readings and you write, um, you've, you've written books and articles, but also you're actively doing mentorship. So can you tell us a, a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, The mentorship program that I'm doing is a relatively recent development, and it's meant to work um, to be a standalone program on its own. But it's also meant to work in a supportive partnership kind of way with um, Stephen's Astrological Apprenticeship Program that's been around a lot longer. 
basically, when you've been doing astrology readings a long time, it's 24 years for me, you've developed a lot of practical experience. Mm-hmm. You've developed a lot of stories and storytelling techniques and ways to think about images and ways to get things across to clients. Right. Um, you've made a lot of mistakes. <laughs> yeah. And you've learned some things about how you might not have made that mistake had you known better. Right. In my case, you've had to learn a lot about building rapport. Um, yes. Some people are born knowing how to build rapport easily. I am not one of those people. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I think I'm pretty good at teaching it just because I had to work so hard to learn it. Right. So um, I want to help give people tools that yeah. will help them do readings um, and help them become effective evolutionary astrologers. Mm-hmm. An effective evolutionary astrologer is a combination of a spiritually oriented life coach, um, a perceptive counselor, and an engaging, memorable, attention-getting teacher all rolled up into one. Mm-hmm. This is material that is easier to get from somebody who's been doing it a long time. Books help. Books are wonderful. Mm-hmm. I'm still reading astrology books, but it also really helps to just get some one-on-one time with somebody who's um, got got some chops that have developed over a number of years. Yes, and I'm I'm finding that more people uh, who are interested in astrology are going that route now and wanting the one-on-one instruction because what what you can't get from a book is not only the experience of someone, but also um, things like chart synthesis, uh, kind of hands-on working with the chart and doing chart synthesis is not something that can really be fully addressed in a, in a book because, you know, a lot of books out there are cookbooky and also theoretical and not to disparage them at all, but there's only so much information I think that you can get from a book. And then you have to start diving in and doing the actual readings. Mm -hmm. And so it really helps, I think, to have a guide through that process. So I really value, um, the mentorship that that you offer there and and what you're doing. So how do people um, engage in that or find out about that? And um, can people do it from long distance with you or how does that work? Well, probably um, sending people to my website, Mm -hmm. sevenpawspress.com. Okay. Um, Spell out the seven and pause is like animal pause. Mm -hmm. Um, Going to the site map and then clicking on um, astrological mentoring program, Jody. Mm-hmm. Um, there, we have a specific website about it. Um, I have programs in northern and southern California at this point, um, in, o- in the Bay Area in Oakland, yeah. and at Blue Sky Ranch in Alpine, California, mm-hmm. um, and Lakeside, California. So I do classes out there several times a year, um, or people can come to Chapel Hill and uh, spend about a week here or a few days here, however long they need, and do an intensive with me. Mm-hmm. Um, or they can work with me on the phone. I should add that I'm going to be dividing my time between Chapel Hill and Borrego Springs, California, so coming to work with me in person there is also going to be um, a possibility very soon. Oh, great. Okay, so they can catch you on the east or the west coast. (laughs) Precisely. Yeah, Yeah. wonderful. Well, Jody, I'd like to thank you so much for your time, and I really appreciate you talking with me today. Well, thank you. Thanks for asking me. I've really enjoyed this, Dana. I'm glad. Thank you. You're welcome. If you've been enjoying this podcast, you'll also want to check out evolutionsofastrology.com. 
There you can subscribe to my monthly newsletter and find out more about my classes and astrology readings. I'm available to do readings via phone or in person, and all readings include a CD recording of the session. To contact me, you can reach me through the website at www.evolutionsofastrology.com.